Hi friends, uh, it's good to be back with you. It feels like it's been a long while. Uh, it's been good the last couple weeks though to hear from these different people, uh, to hear from uh, what other people are learning from the Gospel of Matthew as they study and read. So thank you Julia and Peter and Jaden and Chandra for, for teaching us in the last couple weeks. Uh, here's the question I have for us to start. Have you ever been reading uh, some kind of thriller, the one of those whodunit books, and, and partway through the book, you just kind of thumb to the end of the book uh, to figure out who did it, uh, you know that makes you a terrible person, right? Like if you are ruin you are ruining the, the author's big reveal, and yet if you're like me, uh, sometimes you just want to get to the punchline. Uh, then there's some of those books that maybe you've read. Some of those, um, some of my favorite types of books to read are those those fictional books where you're reading it, and suddenly, partway through the book, there's this big reveal, this moment that changes everything that you've been reading. All of a sudden, she's not dead. Uh, there's a new perspective. The author switches the perspective. You hear the story again from this new uh, this new telling of the same story. I love those kinds of books. Uh, maybe you're not a reader. Maybe you like to watch movies, right? In, in that case, then. Uh, probably the, the movie to think of here is The, the Sixth Sense. Uh, it's the perfect example. You, you get to the end of the movie, you're hit with the big reveal, you walk out of the movie theater, you buy another ticket, you sit down so you can watch it again because uh, you have to see that big obvious thing that was there throughout the whole entire film. In a similar way, I think it's helpful to read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, starting at the end and then going back to the beginning. Uh, I know it goes against everything we know about reading and the right way to read a book, but to understand the Sermon on the Mount, I think we just need to start at the end where Jesus ends with this parable. And so I want to read to you Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 29. I'm reading out of the Common English Bible. It says, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. On the judgment day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and expel demons in your name and do lots of miracles in your name? Then I'll tell them, I've never known you. Get away from me, you people who do wrong. Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise builder who built a house on bedrock. The rain fell, the floods came up, the wind blew and beat against that house. It didn't fall because it was firmly set on bedrock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice will be like a fool who built a house on the sand the rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against that house. It fell and was completely destroyed. When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them like someone with authority, not like the legal experts. Two things that are good to know just in terms of the historical context of this passage. The first is that this is a time in which most teachers don't want to speak on their own authority. When possible, the teachers of Jesus' day would look to earlier authorities to support their teaching. In contrast, Jesus speaks to the crowd as one who is authoritative. He is God with us, King Jesus, who is Lord and Savior, and his authority is enough to, to do this teaching. What we see in the Sermon on the Mount is a new Moses, a, a prophet from God delivering God's message on a mountain to the people, just like Moses did. The, the style, the, the setting, the tone, they're just like all the prophets who spoke 
for God before them. But there's this critical difference is that Jesus never once says, you know, thus saith the Lord, but rather Jesus speaks and teaches as the voice of God. Let me say that again. Jesus teaches not as a voice for God, but as the voice of God. This is the longest teaching of Jesus, and it has to be heard and understood as the revealing of God's word to the people of God. Second kind of cultural and historical piece for us to remember is that in the time of Jesus, they didn't have foundations for their houses, right? There was no concrete foundation that they built upon. There were no piles driven into the ground, into the soil to hold the house up. Uh, to, to us, this image of a house built on sand, we, we can understand, maybe not a very good idea, but with our modern building techniques, we can essentially build a house wherever we want. Uh, we love our beachfront properties. But, but homes in Palestine weren't built with foundations. Their stability depended entirely on the ground on which they were built. A house on sand might look fine, but when the rains came and the creek beds filled, the floods can sweep away a house until there's nothing left. The only way to have a solid foundation in the time of Jesus was to build your house on the bedrock, on the solid ground. Imagine though, like what would it be like to ignore the wisdom of all your neighbors, those who built their house on the rock, and you decide to ignore them and just build your house on the sand? Is, is that not the height of arrogance? The, the rabbis of Jesus' day actually had a parable very similar to that of Jesus. But there's this crucial difference. For them, the rock was the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scripture. And here Jesus tells us a similar story to this parable that the, the Jewish rabbis told. But instead of the Torah, he looks at the crowd and he says, My words are the rock-solid foundation that you can build your life on. These words that I am giving you, if you obey them, if you live it out, if you choose to follow after me and what I have taught you, the promise is that when the rains come, when the winds and the floods beat against your life, these words can guide you through. They will be a solid rock to build upon. Now this matters, right? Because for many years, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount has, has somehow become this strange teaching. Now, we sort of admire it, but, but there can be a lot of hesitancy around these teachings of Jesus. We hear these words, we don't really want to put them into practice. Uh, one quote I read about this passage says, In fact, the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of attempts to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and un uncompromising, and render it harmless. And so we generally approach this teaching of Jesus today in one of four different ways. Uh, first, we ramp up the demands of the Sermon on the Mount so much that it becomes unattainable. And we teach the Sermon on the Mount in a way that says, don't you see how bad you are? Don't you see how much you need Jesus' grace and you need him? This is an impossible ethic and you can't, no one can live up to this. Uh, a second approach to the Sermon on the Mount is to internalize it, to make it a private teaching. This is a way for your own personal life, but don't try to bother actually living out this enemy love and turning the cheek in the real world. We spiritualize the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and personalize it into our own hearts. A third approach is to say, well, the Sermon on the Mount is only for radical or extreme Christians, right? The monks, the nuns, the pastors, the super Christians, they can live this out. But the ordinary follower of Jesus doesn't actually need to take this teaching as serious or literal. And then a final approach is sometimes to say, well, the Sermon on the Mount is only practical for those who've been first met and transformed by the grace of God. 
But the problem with all of these approaches is that it's not what Jesus says at the end of his teaching. At the end of his teaching, he lays it out for all the people and he says, Choose. Will you follow me? Will you obey what I have said? Will you do this? Will you build your life on the home? Will you build your home on the bedrock of my words? Jesus essentially says in this parable to you and me, the true follower of Jesus is not the one who says, Lord, Lord. The true disciples are those who actually put their teachings of Jesus into action. N.T. Wright says, Jesus insists in the great warnings which close the sermon that his hearers will be judged, not even on their direct response to God himself, but on whether they hear these words and do them, or whether they will let their ears enjoy the sound of the words, but then leave them as a memory without doing anything about them. I think it's good for us, important for us even, to think of the Bible as the story of God, right? This is the grand story that God tells that takes everything up into it. This grand story, there's different ways we could break up the story, but generally I think we could say there's seven acts to the story of God. For Act one is the creation of the world. It's the perfection. Act two is rebellion, the, the brokenness that enters into the world. Act 3 is the Old Testament promises, and we see the religion, the kingdom, the captivity of the people of God. Act 4, King Jesus arrives. Act 4 is the rescue. Act 5 becomes the New Testament, the mission, the community, the new community of God. Act 6 is the final judgment, and Act 7 is the final, the renewed cosmos, the new heaven and the earth. Now here's what I think is one of the interpretive keys for us if we want to understand the Bible. It is that you and I are participants in the story of the Bible. We are not yet in Act 6 or 7. We've read the script. We know how the play is going to end. But you and I are in the Bible. We live in the middle. You and I live in Act 5. We are part of the New Testament mission to spread the good news that Jesus is King. You and I are living in the scene between Jesus' arrival on earth and his return to put the world back together. In Jesus' teaching, he is talking, he talks about the kingdom of God more than a hundred times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John builds on the idea in a different way. Paul picks up this theme in a number of his key core teachings in the New Testament. And the, Re the book of Revelation gives us this final picture of the kingdom of God in Revelation 20 to 22. We understand that the kingdom of heaven, as taught in the New Testament, is not just about the life beyond that is to come. The kingdom of heaven is inbreaking in the people of God now, as we live out Act 5. The ethics found in, Je in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount are supposed to be in effect here and now. It is the posture of the Christian as we improvise and live out the script in the fifth act of Scripture. The theologian Stanley Haueros says, The sermon, therefore, is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. Last week, Chandra did this amazing job introducing us into the way of the kingdom culture, the way that it starts in, within a kingdom heart of Jesus in our hearts, uh, calling us to align our character with that of Jesus. It, it's, 
the kingdom heart, right? And how we are called to embody it in our life individually, but in a church community as well. I hope those words are still uh, working their way into your life and sinking into you. I, I was just um, so blessed by her teaching. This week, it's my hope to prepare you for what is to come in the rest of the sermon, because this teaching of Jesus is not only for super Christians. This teaching of Jesus is not only about our inner piety. It is not supposed to be so unrealistic that we just give up and say, oh, I'm just so sinful, I can never do this. It is not supposed to be only for this world to come. No, the ethical teaching of Jesus is what it means to have a kingdom culture. This is the warning at the end of this sermon reminds us that this teaching is meant to be listened to and obeyed. It is not a sermon that is meant to sound nice to our ears and then forgotten or left undone. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to be practical. It is the practical, radical teaching of Jesus. The teaching that Jesus wants us to apply and obey and live in the world today. The question that Jesus leaves us with at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is simple. Will you follow me? And so I'd, I'd like to offer a simple idea for putting this into practice starting this week. I'd like us to begin by simply taking the posture of a student. The student, particularly in the time of Jesus, would sit and listen. It's the posture of Mary at the feet of Jesus, listening to the teaching. I want us to not come in the next couple of weeks to the Sermon on the Mount uh, trying to change its meaning or to avoid the tough parts. Rather, we want to be good students and we want to listen to the words of Jesus and allow them to shape our kingdom living, our ethics, our way of life. And so the, the place then for us is like a good student to simply admit that we are the students and Jesus is the teacher and we want to let him teach us about the kingdom of God and what it means to be a people gathered by God and for God. So let's not come to this text trying to change its meaning, avoiding the tough parts, but being students that allow the words of Jesus to shape us. And then like a good student, let us obey the teachings of King Jesus. Because these words are for today. They will guide us as the people of God, living as a new society in the world here and now. The kingdom, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as we see at the end of his teaching, is meant to be obeyed, applied, and lived by all the people who call themselves followers of Jesus. It's a big challenge for us. Um, so this week, why don't you begin to read the Sermon on the Mount to listen to the words of Jesus as he teaches us. Uh, grace and peace, everybody, and we'll see you next week.